Hey there, Marcus here. It is my joy and privilege to serve as pastor here at Awaken Church in Juneau, Alaska. I pray that in the next few moments, the, the word of God proclaimed is a blessing to you and is nourishing to your soul. But we believe here at Awaken that one of the ordinary means of God's grace in our life is the gathering of the people of God. We believe that it's in the gathering that, that we're known and that we know one another. That it's in the gathering that, that we are shaped and fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you this Sunday to come and join us. Come and worship with us. But for now, I pray that you're encouraged by this sermon. God bless. Would you, would you turn with me, please, church, to the gospel according to Mark? chapter 10. We're going to continue this morning together our series through the gospel of Mark, and we're going to pick it up this morning in, um, in verse 17. And as you turn there, I just want to pray again for us for, and ask for the Lord's help and, and to personally ask for his help uh, this morning for me. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, as we come to uh, particular passages of scripture that, uh, that do act as a, a warning for us. We have a tendency to um, to emotionally self-preserve and to uh, do gymnastics and to attempt to kind of wiggle around uh, areas of scripture that that uh, serve as a warning for us and for those who have a either false or uh, or a incorrect understanding of the gospel and of grace this morning as we look at this religious man this rich young ruler and we see his self-deception I, I pray that the warning of scripture would would serve for our good I pray that we would be reminded this morning of how self-deceived we can be and people are all around us and I pray for those of us who who are in Christ and who belong to you and, and have the hope of our salvation that, that we would remember and see in Jesus' example how we are to love but also warn um, those who are perhaps religious or seeking or spiritual but who do not treasure Christ. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate the eyes of our hearts, that you would help us to see the truth of, of Scripture for what it is. And we do thank you that, um, that you give us the ability to rightly interpret and see Scripture for what it is, not just as words on a page, uh, but as the life-giving, God-breathed, profitable truth. And so... Uh, we want to see it this morning, so would you help us, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's read the text together this morning. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. You remember last week we looked at um, Jesus interacting with small children and then rebuking the disciples for not allowing the children to come to him. And the idea behind that interaction is for us to see that without a childlike faith or a childlike heart, uh, you cannot, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the, the topic last week, the subject was really that childlike faith, that childlike heart. And we saw an example of that in small children, that they, they have that total dependency 
um, that, that really reflects very well how you and I come to Christ with that same total dependency and total trust and total need on God to be our Lord and Savior. And so we see this morning, we're going to see this morning here in just a second, a, a totally different kind of heart. We're going to see the heart of, of a man who is self-made, who is very religious, and who is very deceived. Um, and so let's look at that together this morning. This is the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. We're looking together this morning as a passage of scripture that is most commonly referred to just under the title, The Rich Young Ruler. Uh, Mark's gospel doesn't give us as many of the details as Matthew and Luke do uh, about the status of this young man, but we know that he was wealthy, that he was a ruler amidst the, the people of, of Israel. He was most likely a, a leader, a ruler within the synagogue. And, and we know that he was young. In the previous passage of Scripture to this, we see, as I, I said just a second ago, that, that we must have this sort of childlike heart, a childlike faith. And, and really what that describes is, is a total trust and a total dependency, not not a, we'll all do some, and then God will do some, and, and we'll work together and get to heaven. But like an infant or a, a toddler, like those around the room right now, who are utterly and completely dependent upon their parents for everything, so you and I are completely dependent upon God for our salvation and for everything, uh, in, in spiritually speaking and everything physically speaking as well. But as we look at this rich young ruler, we don't see at all that childlike nature that is required for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, eternal life in the presence of God. We see a, a rich man, a self-made man whose heart is not childlike, but rather a heart that is seeking but self-deceived. This man is seeking, certainly, but he is at the core self-deceived. Now, I want us to see that together this morning. There, there's no question at all that, that this man is genuine in his inquiry. He, he is obviously sincere in his question to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life. There's nothing in the text that should cause us, cause us to, 
question his sincerity. We don't see anything like we see with the Pharisees where he's trying to entrap him or, or lead him in a different direction. This is, in fact, a genuine and sincere question. Teacher, good teacher, what must I do? What is, what's necessary? What additional steps must I take if I am to inherit or possess eternal life? And one thing that's helpful for us to, to understand is that the Jews did not view, and nor should we necessarily view eternal life as, uh, as, a qu- as quantitative, as time, as an eternal length of time. They understood eternal life to equate to a life that is wrapped up in who God is, to, to be like God, to be eternal in your being, eternally perfect and, and one with God. And so that's what this man is seeking. He's not just seeking to live forever because he's afraid of death. He's asking, what must I do to have the life that God gives to inherit or possess that kind of life. We know that human beings are eternal beings. Everyone will live eternity, eternally. So it's not a, a question of quantity. It's a question of quality. What type of eternal life will you be living? Will you be living eternally under the wrath of God or eternally in the presence and the bliss of of God. And so he's asking, what must I do to have the latter, to be united with God forever? So there's no question about his sincerity. He's obviously a religious man, isn't he? He, he in fact, he's most likely achieved some level of, of, of status in that. He, he is a leader amongst the people of God. He is a wealthy man. He is self made. He, he is a man who believes in Yahweh. He's not just believing in some form of God, as so many people today often do. They say, yes, I believe in God. In fact, the vast majority of people living today believe in God. And in fact, even atheists believe in God. They just refuse to, to, um, to admit that. I, I remember hearing Dr. R.C. Sproul tell a story of, uh, of being invited to speak at the Atheist Club at a local university. And, he, and when he tells this story, I think I've told you this story before, but when he tells the story, he says that he had not read uh, Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And so when he uh, addressed this crowd of atheists at a, at a university, no less, so you can imagine that dynamic there, he, he, said, he said, I'm not going to argue with you this morning uh, whether or not God exists, because you know God exists. And he says to this atheist club, the, the reality is, is that you know he exists, but you hate the fact that he exists. And it was a pretty awkward exchange from, from that point on. So, so this young man isn't believing in just a random idea of God. He believes in Yahweh, in the God that is revealed in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures particularly, that he would have had and known from childhood. In fact, we know that he has put a great deal of effort from childhood in keeping the commands of God. He sees himself in a, a sort of blameless way. He sees himself, as we'd use in our common vernacular, as good. 
a good person, a decent person. Maybe he's made some mistakes along the way, but oh, by and large, he is a good person. He sees himself as blameless in regards to the law. It's similar to um, the way the Apostle Paul talks about his blamelessness to the law with one key difference. The Apostle Paul says that to the law, I am blameless. But the difference between the two is that the Apostle Paul, upon encountering Jesus Christ, recognized that while he externally was obedient to the law of God, he internally violated it every moment of his life and needed desperately a savior. And he repented, of course, and uh, Saul became Paul, the Apostle Paul. This young man, our text this morning, views himself similarly as, as one who is blameless, who has kept the law, but he doesn't see himself who has kept it externally and is corrupted internally. He sees himself as good. Teacher, I've kept all of these since my youth. And so that's the person that we have before us. But despite his efforts, here, here's the other thing we know about this young man. Despite all of his efforts... His obedience to the law, all of his participation in religious activities, there is still something in the back of his mind that says, maybe there's something else I need to do. Maybe there's a few boxes that I haven't ticked off. There is enough insecurity in this man's heart as to his eternal state that causes him as a ruler and a rich, self-made man to go before Jesus in broad daylight, get on his knees, and beg him to answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It, there, it takes a lot to drive a person to do something like this. I, I have never seen in a church, certainly not in our church, and though we don't really create an environment that would produce such a thing, but I have never seen somebody come forward after I preach and, and bow on their, fall on their knees and just crumble and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It, it, it takes a, a deep sense of missing something in your life to, to cause you to do something like this. There's a void of sorts in his heart. There's an uncertainty in his heart in regards to his eternal status. He does not know whether or not he is one who possesses eternal life. And I wonder if you this morning, hearing my voice, have that similar doubt perhaps, that you have participated all your life in religious activities, and yet in the back of your mind, if you are honest with yourself, and as you are, are staring into the text, are you perhaps religious but still unsure about your eternal security? Is there still a sense of void, a sense of doubt as to your eternal status? It's important for us to remember this morning that this is not a parable. This is not a story that Jesus is telling to describe a point. Uh, Jesus tells stories like this all the time, doesn't he? This could be one of the parables of Jesus just in the, the way that it's playing out. Jesus often uses these stories of short interactions to describe uh, a, a certain point or reality about salvation. But it is, it is really, really important for us to understand this is not a parable. This is not a story. This is a real person. 
This is a human being, flesh and blood, who lived 2,000 years ago during the time of Jesus, who was born and lived in a a religious household and followed the rules and went to synagogue and learned the scriptures and went through all of that his whole life and, and grew in stature in the community and had a career and did all of these things that is now on his knees on a dirt ground with dust all over the place with his fancy clothes of high society being ruined, asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is not a parable. This is a person. It's not a parable. It's a person. It's important for us to remember that as we see Jesus interacting with this rich young man. He's a real person who lived 2,000 years ago who is asking the most important question that any human being who has ever lived or is living today or whoever will live will ask. It is the most important question that you have ever asked or will ask. And that question is, what must we do to inherit eternal life? It is a question that is rooted deep inside of our hearts because we know that we are eternal beings. We know that there is a reality of eternity. That's why in every culture around the world, there is some sort of attempt to explain the reality of of the eternity of our souls. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So this young man, he's asking the right question. He's asking the most important question. Here's something interesting. He's asking it to the right person. He's asking it to, in fact, the only person who has ever been or whoever will be who is capable and able and, might I add, willing to offer eternal life. He is speaking to the one who is in himself the giver of life, the author of life. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you knew who I was, you would ask, and I would give to you living water that would spring up in you wells of eternal life. So he's asking the right question. He's asking it to the right person. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, sadly, there has always been and is today in the world people seeking to answer that question, but they are looking in the wrong places and they are looking for the wrong purpose. We see it take a lot of forms, but the two predominant ones are that of false religion and that of hyper-spirituality. So we all know very well that there are all throughout the world false religions that seek to define an answer to this question, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, they may all have a very different view of what eternal life looks like, what, what the goal is, what's going to be so great about it, but they have an a explanation of eternity and they have a punch list on what you must do to get there. And in every 
false religion, they, they take different forms, but they all fall under that same exact category. If you want to get to eternity, here's what you must do to get there. You must live your life in such and such a way. Some false religions make that incredibly difficult, like that of, of Islam and other very structured religions where you know, there must be a, a, a very rigid daily routine in order to inherit eternal life. And then there are other religions that are very relaxed and, and kind of if you're just a good person and karma and all of that kind of thing. But they all have in common the punch list. Here's what you must do to inherit eternal life. It's interesting to think about the fact that probably any other religious leader that, that this man went to besides Jesus would have been able to give him an answer that he would have found sufficient. Every religion, including his own, of Judaism would have most likely been able to do some investigative questioning and ask him, okay, well, tell me about your life, tell me about your day, tell me about your family, and, and get to a point where they can say, ah, I know what you need. You've done this, this, and this, but you forgot about this one. And he would have went away feeling like, ah, I, I know what to do. All sorts of religions offer that sort of answer as to what you must do to inherit eternal life. But in our day, and really this has always been around as well, but we see it most prevalent in our day in our culture, and that is this idea of, of spirituality, of being hyper-spiritual. In fact, it's, it's a badge of honor nowadays to be a spiritual person, not to be a religious person, especially not to be a Christian person, but to be a spiritual person has some cultural clout. That, that, that gives you some influence in our society. When we talk about being a spiritual person in our day, what, what we're talking about is being a type of person that believes that we are more than just physical beings that we do have, in fact, a soul, we have a spirit, and that our souls need to be nurtured and cared for as much, if not more, than our physical beings and physical bodies. And so you have people um, just kind of collecting a, a, um, a scrapbook full of different ways that they can self-care for their souls. I, was, uh, I watched an interview a while back of a person, I don't even remember who it was, but they were being interviewed about how um, their life has just been really, really difficult during this period of time in history, and, um, and just the challenges that this, this woman had faced, and the, the interviewer asked her, how do you cope with all of that stress and anxiety? It seems to be overwhelming. The, inter the interviewer said, if I was in your position, I think I would just kind of crumble under the pressure. And she said, oh, that's very easy. Every morning before I start my day, I follow a guided meditation. And they, they, the interviewers sat back and went, oh, that's very interesting. And there was this sort of ridiculous interaction. And I've been personally very sensitive to this sort of absurdity lately where 
you can literally see on a person's face, as a follower of Christ, who, who has a peace that doesn't belong to you. You remember that, that you and I, the, the peace that we possess, it, it's not our own. It doesn't come from us. It is a gift given to us by God. It is the peace of Christ in us. The joy that we have in our souls, despite our external circumstances, does not come from us. It is the joy of Christ that is given to us and placed in us, that, that is there despite our circumstances. And so we, whether you realize it or not, and sometimes we don't realize the type of peace that we have. Sometimes we get worked up enough that, that we forget what it feels like for your life to truly feel out of control. As a Christian, do you, do you at all remember what it was like to not have Christ and your life to be spinning out of chaos, into chaos? I, I honestly can't remember what that was like. I can't imagine going through the things that I have gone through in my life without having Christ who is my rock. So we might feel like our life is chaotic, but we have a peace that surpasses all human understanding. And so when we who possess that kind of peace see people who are simply spiritual or who are seekers, you can see the pain and the anxiety on their face as they talk about all they're doing to care for their souls. Because deep down inside, while they are spiritual and while they are seeking spiritual things, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, they are self-deceived. They are fooling themselves. But the greatest tragedy of all, I believe, is when the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes that false assurance of salvation. When Christian truths, biblical truths, become that addition to one's life that makes you feel a false sense of security. Where Christ is not your treasure, but is a coin added to the top of your treasure that you have accumulated over the course of your life. Where the gospel of Jesus Christ for an individual is their get-out-of-jail-free card, their ticket to heaven, their crutch for a sense of peace about eternal life so they just don't have to think about it and can focus on the, the day ahead of them. And when they are self-deceived about their relationship to Christ because of how they view him and view the gospel. The greatest tragedy of all is when professing Christians view eternal life with God as an addition instead of the very substance of life itself. When Christians view salvation as one of their possessions instead of their life. Paul says to his letter at the church at Philippi that he considers all that he has in his life, all that he has gained, all of his status, all of his possessions, all of his wealth. He says, when I compare them to knowing Christ, I consider them as dung or as rubbish in comparison 
to knowing Christ. He said, I, I consider everything in my life as loss in comparison to knowing him. And he says, the reason why I do that, Paul explains, is so that I would be found in him. So, so that I would lay hold of him as he would lay hold of me and that I would finish the race. And when all is said and done, I will inherit the eternal life in God that is mine. That I would not be so self-deceived as to be religious and seeking. That I would not be one who believes in Christ who believes that he is the Messiah, and yet when all is said and done, my life, my possessions, my family, my children, my wealth, my career, my business, my self-satisfaction, my house, my whatever it is, is my God and not Christ. Paul says when I compare the two, everything else is nothing in comparison to knowing him. The tragedy of this story, church, is that the man is asking the right question, and he's asking it to the right person. And he is even genuine in his asking. But at the end of the day, he loves his possessions more than he loves Christ. He loves his life and his status more than he loves Christ. Listen, if he could have both, he would have gladly followed Christ. But the issue is he was unwilling in his heart at the core of who he was to not only follow Christ externally but to internally cherish him as his treasure. Cherish God as his treasure. The issue is that this rich young man is an idolater that he worships his possessions and not the God that he knows exists. Before we look together at the particulars of this story and work through the interaction, I, I want to just help us to simply, uh, to, to simply understand what's taking place here. This is a very, very simple passage of Scripture it's very simple to understand, and, and it, is, it exposes our hearts. No matter which side of this story you fall on, this interaction with Jesus and Jesus' response to the young man exposes the true condition of our heart. Now, we might not be able to look around at each other and see what's going on, but you know, you and God know the condition of your heart and this story exposes that. In fact, what Jesus is doing in this story, though he pities this man and shows a, a certain type of love for him that God shows towards sinners, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, God knows his heart. Jesus knows his heart. And despite his compassion and his pity for this man, at the end of, this day, at the, end of the day, his heart is going to be exposed. No one will stand before God and not have the true condition of their heart laid bare. And so that's what Jesus is doing this morning. So can I just simply lay out the situation for us? 
so that we might examine ourselves and so the Holy Spirit might either encourage or convict or whatever he must do this morning. I think the best way for us to approach it and to understand why this text of Scripture is even there and why it's in Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke for us to see and for us to heed its warning, I, I think the best way to do that is to simply put it in this way. If you heard me begin to read this passage of Scripture this morning, and you perhaps being familiar with this text said to yourself, great, this is another one of those, if I want to be a Christian, I have to give up everything I have sort of messages. This is one of those self-sacrifice messages. I can't believe on Super Bowl Sunday I came to church to hear this kind of message. If in the back of your mind there's even the slight tinge of annoyance that I as the preacher might call you out this morning because of your love of your worldly possessions as the American that you are and what a terrible Christian you are for having a car and not walking to church this morning and, and you're annoyed by that, even just a little bit, you may be in the danger zone of being like this rich young ruler. Because what is really important here is not this man's possessions, but the fact that his possessions and his status are his God. Now, riches are dangerous. They are. And there is a way that we as professing Christians should handle the resources that God gives us. It's next week that we'll look at that because it, Jesus turns to the crowd after addressing this young man and says it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And we're not going to do gymnastics about that. A lot of commentaries and things say, well, there was a gate called Needle in Jerusalem and a camel would get on his knees and crawl through the gate. So it's harder, but it's not impossible. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's impossible. You can't shove a, cam a camel through the eye of a needle unless it's some roadside attraction, you know, giant needle. But, it, but the point, then we're getting away from the point, right? It is difficult. Rich, riches are dangerous. Money is dangerous. Status is dangerous for a lot of different reasons in a lot of different ways. But ultimately, what matters here is not the man's possessions, but his heart. Who his God is, is what is in question here. So if you find yourself annoyed at this idea that God might ask you to give up everything you have, even your very life, and that seems like a sacrifice to you, you might be the self-righteous, self-made, self-deceived, rich young ruler. And that should concern you. You should feel the warning of Scripture. You should count it as the kindness of God that he might lead you to repentance by exposing your self-deception. And the other side of the coin is that for those of us who understand who Christ is, the treasure that he is, 
There's something inside of the heart of a genuine believer that says, if I was asked, I would gladly give all that I have. Listen, I, I am blessed more than I could comprehend. I do not understand why God has blessed me and my family the way he has. It seems absurd to me and over the top. And I, I pray that because, not because of me, but because the Holy Spirit is in me, that if I was asked to give even my very life for Christ, that I would gladly and willingly do that because we say with the Apostle Paul, Christ is better. For me to die is gain because Christ is so much better. If you have a hard time understanding that, you need to hang around here a little bit longer and begin to understand what it means for Christ to be the treasure that he is. You may need to fill out your understanding of what it means to belong to Christ, to know him, to be found in him. It's not just that you will live forever. It's not, it's not uh, quantitative. It's not, it's not quantity. It is quality of life, a life that is wrapped up with God So despite this man's security blanket of his wealth, and by the way, by biblical standards, you and I, every one of us, fall around the category of the rich young ruler. Some of us might not be as rich as the rich young ruler, but most of us are at the level of the rich young ruler or far surpass the rich young ruler's economic status by biblical time standards. Here's why. How many of you made the clothes you're wearing this morning? Did you? How many of you wove together the fabric to then stitch together the clothes that you're... Wait, you paid somebody to do that? You're wealthy. You're wealthy beyond comparison. How many of you went hungry None of you. And even if you have no money for food, here's an interesting fact. You live in a place where you can go find it. Your entire food supply will never be entirely wiped out because of a famine. It's just not going to happen. By biblical standards, you are in the danger zone of the rich young ruler. Now, some of you have material wealth by our standards today, and you are really in danger. But that's, again, that's, that's for next week. Despite this man's security blanket of wealth, he approaches Jesus in a genuine way, and he comes to him, and he falls down on his knees. I find that to be incredible. Man, that would have been an awkward moment, wouldn't it have been? He's not dressed in clothes like the rest of everybody else. He, he is dressed in the robes that, that display his wealth the same way people do today. The nice shoes and nice clothes, you know, that you don't want to get dirty because you paid a lot of money for them, right? You got your work clothes and you got your nice clothes. He's in his, his nice clothes and he gets down, kneels down before Jesus and a sign of respect and reverence and says, good teacher, what must I do? It's interesting that Jesus doesn't immediately answer his question. 
Here, here's what you must do to inherit eternal life. You know, you and I, as people who have believed in the gospel, this would be a, a moment that we would remember, right? That one day when somebody asked me the way for eternal life, I, I am tempted to do a show of hands of how many of us have ever had someone come to us in a moment of vulnerability and say, I know that you got something that I don't. I, I know it happens. But that, that's, a, that's a moment that you would not forget. And, and we would immediately jump to the gospel, wouldn't we? Before they finished speaking, we'd be like, Jesus! He's the way. And we would begin to say, okay, there's the salvation road and here's you and here's God and here's the cavern and the cross becomes the bridge, you know, and all those. We would use whatever technique we were taught to explain to them the gospel, the way to God through Jesus Christ. We would be all over it, but not Jesus, who is the way. Who is the propitiation of our sins that we might be united with God forever. Jesus doesn't say, well, here's what you do. He does say that elsewhere. Jesus does, says, does say to others, believe in me. But to the young man, he says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. See, Jesus doesn't immediately answer his question. He begins to expose the actual condition of his heart by asking him to explain his standard of what is good. Because you see, we, we have such a skewed and diminished understanding of what truly good goodness really is. We do not know what it is to be good. We have been drinking the contaminated pond water that we think is good for so long that we cannot even imagine a fresh spring. God is the very essence of what is good. His holiness, his nature and his character, his very being of what he is, everything that God is, is the standard of what is good. God does not do good things to some other standard. He is in himself good. And every act and action of God is good and he is the standard of what is good. And so the law of God is good as well because it reflects what it would look like to be good or to be righteous as God is. And so what this young man has is a skewed understanding of what good is because he thinks that he is good according to his own standards, according to the standards that he has been taught. And so Jesus begins to expose the reality of his heart by asking him the question, why do you call me good? Only God is good. 
Jesus is not diminishing his own goodness. He's not saying, he's not separating himself from God. He's not saying, well, God is good and you and me, we're in a different category. He's simply exposing the chasm between the goodness of God and the uh, corrupted nature of this self-deceived person. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. So that's the beginning of the exposure. And then Jesus begin, continues to, to lead him down this path of self-exposure. And Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. You ask me what you must do to be good as you say you're good. Okay, here, here's the commandments. And Jesus lists the ten, part of the Ten Commandments that has to do with how we interact with one another, how human beings interact with other human beings in a way that is good and in accordance with the law. And he, he says to him, you know the commandments. Don't, uh, do not murder. That, okay, all right. Uh, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Uh, do not defraud, which is probably a summary of do, do not covet your neighbor. Um, honor your father and mother. And notice what the young man says. Oh, I've kept those. I'm good, right? That, that's what it takes? I've, I've done that. I've done that. So am I okay? Because I feel like I'm missing something. But I must be okay. Am I okay? You know, it's interesting because what Jesus considers obedience to those commands and what this young man and the rest of the culture in which he lived considered obedience are two very different things. And, and the best way for us to understand that is to be reminded of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Mount, where he said to them, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, and he says that over and over again, right? You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. There's this idea of if, if you want to be good as God is good according to the standard of, of what good actually is in your adherence to the law, you can't just obey it externally. You, it has to be a reality of who you are internally. It has to be the very essence of who you are. You have to be good according to this standard internally if you are to have or possess the eternal life that God gives and that God is. So Jesus exposes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That no matter your external actions, you and I are all corrupt and all guilty of violating the law of God that is good, given by the God who is good in himself. So this young man thinks that he's kept the commandments, but even the commandments that Jesus listed, he's violated every day of his life. How do, I, how do we know that? Because he's human? Because he's human? And because the only one who lived a perfect and sinless life was Jesus Christ, who then on the cross bore our sin? Upon himself and the wrath of God that was due to us who sin every day of our lives, though we believe in him, was, was that wrath intended for us, was placed on Christ. And so the wrath of God towards you and I is now satisfied and we're at peace with God. That is, that's what it means that Jesus is the propitiation of our sin. He's the means by which God's anger towards you and I has been finished and satisfied and, and is no more. 
He's a violator of God's law. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He said, love the Lord your God. That's right, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And Jesus adds, with all, all your strength. The biggest problem that this rich young ruler has is not that he's violated all the other commandments, which he has, but the, he has violated the greatest commandment of all, he is an idolater. He loves his possessions more than he loves his God. So he says, I've kept all those. Am I okay? And then Jesus exposes him. I want you to notice that after Jesus gives these commandments and this young man gives his self-deceived response, you need to see the type of love that Jesus has for this sinner. There is a type of love that God has for sinners, but it is vastly different than the love that he has for his elect. There is a way in which God loves the sinner that it, that it flows from pity and from um, a, a kind of sadness. God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, though he is glorified in it. There's kind of a, a sense of God desiring that all men would be saved, all people would be saved, though we know that that is not part of his divine plan to make much of his name by not every person being saved. But there is a, there's a type of love that he has for these sinners and a compassion that he gives in, in allowing them to live full lives, what we, what we call the common grace of God that is given to all people. Jesus looks at this young man with, with a sense of love and compassion and, and pity for his self-deceived decision, but at the end of the day, he's still going to expose him for who he truly is. I think it was an old German teacher that said in German that God cannot look through his, look at our sin through his fingers, which is an idea of like a police officer coming across a person committing a, a crime and would do something like this to pretend like he can't see, though he sees it. God, God can't do that. He does not do that because it would violate his justice, and nor can Jesus, who is God, and so at the end of the day, though he has compassion on him, his true state of his heart is exposed. And Jesus is, exposes it in this way. He says, one thing you lack, one thing you lack, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, what, what we need to see this morning is that this is not a test, okay? Now, I don't know if you've ever bartered with God, God, if you do this for me, I'll, I'll give you five years of my life. I'll become a missionary. We, we do have a tendency sometimes to do that. But this is not a barter exchange. You don't have enough wealth. In fact, all the money in the world is not enough to pay off the one who owns and creates and, and upholds all things that, that he might save you. Remember, that was part of Satan's temptation of Jesus. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, Satan tells Jesus. This is not a, a barter, and it's not a test either. 
It's not a test to the validity of the young man's faith. Jesus is, is not going to kind of pull him a little further and say, okay, I, I see you're on, you're on your knees. That's a good start. You seem sincere. So I'll tell you what, meet me back here in a week and a half time. I got some other ministry and healing and miracles to do, and I got to prepare my disciples for my death, ultimate death here in just a few weeks on the cross. Uh, but, but you and I, will, I'll fit you in next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Let's go, just go do this and come back. We'll see how serious you are. This is not that. This is simply an exposure of the true condition of his heart. And Jesus could have just called him out. He did that. He did that to the Pharisees a lot. You brood of vipers. He just said it. But to the rich young man, he exposes him by asking him to do the one thing that he knew the young man could never do. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And it says that the man went away and he was crushed. He was disheartened. He was sorrowful. Because what he was looking for was to add eternal life to the life that he already had. And what Jesus bids us is to come and to die to ourselves and to live to Christ. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? And that was the one thing that this man could not do because his God, his idol, his treasure was not God, but his possessions. One of my favorite parables that Jesus tells is the one about a man who's walking across the field. And as he walks across the field, he stumbles upon a treasure. It's buried in the middle of the field. And what the man does is he sees the value of the treasure that far surpasses everything that he has ever seen or known or has. And so the man goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field in which the treasure is. And the point of the parable is just like two or three verses. It's way shorter than what I just said. It just says that a man was walking across the field and he stumbled upon a, a, upon a treasure and in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought his field. That's the parable. But what is said in the midst of the parable is that for those of us who have eternal life, Christ is our treasure. And we would be willing if asked to give up all that we have for the sake of Christ and his name. It doesn't have anything to do with the possessions, guys. That's, that's a separate issue. It has to do with what you value. And what you value will affect the way you live every, every area of your life. It will. It'll, it'll affect the way you view the, way, the reason why God gave you those positions or of stature or those possessions or anything like that. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you again for passages of scripture like this that can serve as a warning, that do serve as a warning for us. And for those that are um, self-deceived and self-righteous, these passages of scripture have thousands of times over been your goodness and kindness towards individuals and drawing them to repentance. Every part of scripture is profitable and it's for our good. and, And we thank you that that there are passages like this. And so I do pray for those that, that hear hearing this now or will hear this in, in the future, that if in fact they are self-deceived and self-righteous, maybe spiritual, maybe seeking, but ultimately at the end of the day, you are not their treasure. I, I pray that you would um, convict them in such a way that leads to repentance and salvation. For those of us that are yours and belong to you, I pray that we would be reminded again of, of how free the gift of grace that we've received actually is, how we could never buy it. With a thousand lifetimes, we could never earn our salvation, but you freely have given it to those of us that you've called by your name. And, and for that, we are forever grateful. And I ask, Lord, that for those of us who believe in you and who understand the gospel, that we would see in this text this morning the way Jesus you interact with the self-righteous and the deceived and that we would with the same love and compassion and and um, and pity for people in that situation and would approach them with love and with the truth that we would not shrink back from explaining and declaring to them what is true, but that we would do it from a place of love, that we'd see your example in that. We ask that you would use us, use this church for the sake of the gospel going into our post-Christian society in which we live. And it would cut through all of the religious attitudes and the spiritual attitudes and pierce the hearts of men and women and young people so that they would come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. Would you use us to do this? We ask in your beautiful, precious name. Amen.